0: Uh, let's get right to it. Daniel, book of Daniel, chapter eight. Some can, you know, confess that the Bible is somewhat repetitive. And um, and I, as a as a slow learner, I love that the Bible's repetitive. Um, they say uh, that repetition is the mother of all learning. And I find that to be true. And uh, so I don't complain when the Bible's repeating something or uh, giving us different you know, angles. In fact, repetition is for learning, but also uh, in the Bible sometimes the repetition that we see is to give us maybe another perspective or additional information. And it's almost like we're, we're uh, stepping up a staircase. Uh, as we look at each perspective, we learn a little bit more um, about what we're seeing. And so really, we're doing that here in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is is stepping up. You know, we started with the step number one, Daniel chapter two, the the world's perspective on the kingdoms of this world, the the statue of gold, silver, brass, and iron, the nations of the world that would be smashed by the stone cut without hands. We saw that uh, in Daniel chapter two, step one. Daniel chapter seven, we saw it more from God's perspective, the, the beast's. And we learned a little bit more because out of that fourth beast came, you know, the, the 10 horns, but out of the, and all we had was 10 toes. We, we left Daniel 2 with 10 toes. Remember that? But in Daniel chapter 7, we have the 10 toes when bada bing, we got a little horn popping out of those 10 horns. What, where did that one come from? And he ripped out three of the other horns. And suddenly we're learning more about these 10 kingdoms in the last days uh, that's going to be around right Before the rapture, or uh, you know, the the second coming of Christ, I should say on that one. So, um, so we learned a little bit more, and and you know, who is this little horn? Well, then um, we we come to this funny little uh, diversion in chapter eight that is zooming in on just two of those kingdoms, and we looked. We started to look at this uh, on Sunday, and we saw you know the ram and the he goat, and the ram was representing the Medo Persian Empire and we looked at that in depth. But uh, let's, let's uh, just quick review. We saw there in Daniel chapter eight, uh, verses one through eight, that little section that was speaking of those two kingdoms of the other the four that we talked about in the previous chapters, zooming in on the Medo-Persian empire and the Greek empire um, led by Alexander the Great. And um, we looked at this goat and what have you. Let's read this just once again, just so in case you missed it, uh, let's just kind of get everybody up to speed. Verse one, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Um, Now, by the way, this, this chapter, chapter eight, is the third year of Belshazzar. Chapter seven is the first year of Belshazzar. So, so that's why it says here in verse one, this is the like the second vision that came to Daniel after that appeared at the first. The first one that he got was, was Daniel seven in the first year of Belshazzar. Um, but it was all during that same general era when Belshazzar was the king in Babylon. And verse two, I saw in a vision and it came to pass when I saw, uh, I was at Shushan in the palace which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision and I was by the river Ulai." Now the river Ulai, by the way, is more of a, um, it was kind of a, somewhat of an aqueduct. It was almost like a, a channel of, uh, or canal, I should say, of, of, of water that was used. But it was only used um, many, many years later. And fa- same with Shushan. Shushan was, as I mentioned on Sunday, another name for Susa. Um, But Shushan, Susa, um, it was was a nothing town when Daniel prophesied this. It really didn't have any meaning. But if you know your history, um, the Persians, as they became stronger, the second horn of the ram got bigger, remember that? When the Persians got more powerful, they moved their capital from Babylon to Shushan, and it became a mighty city, Much, much later. So it's interesting that Daniel, again, those that say the book of Daniel's a forgery, and it must have been written years later. One of the reasons they say that is because Shushan wasn't even really much of a place when Daniel said all this was going to take place. And Shushan and this river that was kind of nothing uh, suddenly become something. Um, Daniel's prophecies are very exact. and, And you can really dive deep, if you want, into every little nuance of everything Daniel's saying. It really does come to pass in kind of a profound and meaningful way. And, and Shushan, you know, became famous. Remember the Persian uh, uh, Artaxerxes uh, during the time of Esther? That all happened at Shushan. Um, uh, the story of Esther uh, begins at Shushan. So uh, it becomes a big place. It wasn't a big place during the time of Daniel, kind of interesting. But uh, all that, he sees this vision, uh, verse three. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. We know that's the Medo-Persians, the two horns, Medes and the Persians. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher came up last. The Persians became more powerful at the end. This is all stuff we looked at Sunday. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. Uh, interesting list and, and, um, and also the wrong order if you're just saying north, south, east, and west. Even the Jews had a normal way of saying it, and this is not it. The reason why? This is exactly how the Medo-Persian Empire pushed. They first went west, then they pushed north, then they pushed south. This is really great. This is all you know. Daniel getting it exact in his vision. So that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. That's the Medes in the Persian Empire. Um, by the way, as that went, would go on for years, it's, it'd become less of the Medo-Persian Empire, and it would kind of become the Persian Empire, uh, largely known as that, because it's the horn that got bigger and bigger uh, at the last. Verse 5, and as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Quiz time. What was the Jewish idiom when it says that, that touched not the ground? Anybody? Fast, speedy—that's uh, that's an idiom of the Jews. Their, their feet didn't even touch the ground like a horse running. Now, um, one thing that's kind of funny—I didn't mention this on Sunday—but um, what did a goat have to do with the Greeks? Well, as it turns out, did you know that was the symbol of Greece? I didn't bring that up. Um, they they used the symbol of the goat, and um, and that's the the Aegean Sea is, is the Sea of the Goat. That's what that word means, the Aegean Sea, um, and. Uh, and also, uh, Alexander named his son uh, uh, August, which was the, the goat. Like, the goat thing was a big thing with the Greeks and with Alexander and with that kingdom. So it's extremely appropriate uh, that the Bible would use the goat as the symbol for Alexander the Great uh, and the goat. The goat being the Greeks, the horn being Alexander himself, as we looked at on Sunday. That's the notable horn um, that's between his eyes, in, in the end of verse 5. And verse 6. He came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river and ran into him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close to the ram as he was moved with collar against him and smote the ram and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped on him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came up. And, it, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So these are the verses we looked at on Sunday. We talked about you know, the Jedua, the uh, high priest during the time when Alexander came to Jerusalem and how he read these eight verses or seven and a half verses uh, he read to Alexander. He said, man, you're in the Jewish Bible. And it, it caused Alexander to spare Jerusalem because he was listed in the holy writings of the Jews. Um, and it's an amazing story about that. And we, we took a look at Alexander the Great and compared him to Jesus the Greatest. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting compare and contrast in light of the world and it's, its um, you know, lust for good leadership and for the vacuum of leadership that's in the world today. And the world's, the stage is set for a coming evil leader, a false leader. We'll get into that a little bit more tonight. Um, but, uh, but Jesus is the one the world really needs. And we always need to remember that uh, and, uh, and keep that tucked away. Um, now, it's interesting because uh, this description of the way the goat you know, hit the, horn, the horns and broke the horns and then stamped all over the, that's exactly what Alexander the Great did. He, he just kept pounding Darius III. Uh, and even though Darius was kind of beat down, he just kept kind of pounding on him. Uh, and and you know, basically, uh, Alexander just ultimately beat the Medo-Persian empire into submission uh, and became great. And then just like it says here in the Bible, when the horn waxed great, it became broken. At the age of 33, Alexander the Great died, and, uh, and suddenly he's left with what? Well, four notable horns that are left after the one was broken. And that's kind of where we uh, pick this up. So um, just a few things just to remind you about uh, you know, where we are here. The goat. Um, the Greeks, uh, also Alexander the Great. Um, it's interesting because he came from the west. That's exactly what happened. The, the, the Alexander moved his army, and he moved at great speed. But he also uh, was able to subdued, uh, subdued the whole. He was able to subdue the whole known world. And that's when Alexander said, "There's no more uh, worlds for me to conquer, and what have you." Now, we talked about on Sunday, the, the, after the single horn was broken, the four horns came up. And just to review on that, those four horns would be, after some skirmishes and some fighting, uh, would be the four generals that came after Alexander the Great. And these, uh, we went over these a little bit uh, on Sunday, Cassander took over Europe. Lysimachus, Asia Minor, Ptolemy took up over Egypt, which was a big deal. Alexandria, and he he set up camp down there in Egypt, and then Seleucus, uh took on ba- took over Babylon, Asia, and Syria. Um, the Seleucid Empire would would, it would become that, and and that's kind of important to know as we as we sort of read about these um, these four generals. Out of the four generals. Two of these, we're gonna zoom in even closer. Uh, that's what we're doing in these steps of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 11. It's gonna be a whole nother step closer. And we're gonna zoom in on, in Daniel chapter 11 to two of these, the Ptolemies and the Solution Empire. Um, and uh, it's gonna be kind of an ugly situation, but out of it's gonna come some amazing prophecy and what have you. We're gonna do a little bit of that tonight. Um, so the big question is, um, verse 9, it goes on. It says, And out of one of them, the four, it says, came a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and the stars to the ground and stamped on them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and cast down, uh, pardon me, and and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Okay, so we have here the little horn. You're like, oh, I know who that is, Brett. We learned that in chapter seven, it's the Antichrist. Well, are you so sure? Is the little horn of Daniel chapter eight, the same little horn of Daniel chapter seven? And you'd think, of course, Uh, we've been following this perfectly. Uh, And and it would match up if you just kind of took a nominal look at it. But as it turns out, uh, I'm gonna say it this way at first, Um, it is not the same little horn of Daniel chapter seven. but it's gonna be a little confusing unless you are familiar with the way the Bible often presents prophetic things. And this is where you gotta understand uh, what, the Bible, what, what Bible scholars call dual fulfillments of prophecy. There are oftentimes prophecies in the Bible that are spoken about an individual that we can often look back historically, and it is legitimately about that person but it's also a foreshadow or a speaking of someone coming in the future or someone as you gaze out into a more broad picture of the, of the world. Let me give you a reminder. Remember when we were in the book of Isaiah, we were talking about the king of Tyre. Remember the king of Tyre? And there was all these curses that went through the king of Tyre. And it, you're like, man, that king of Tyre, he must have been a, a, you know, a bad dude. You know, The king of Tyre. But then you could see Isaiah's gaze in Isaiah 14, and later on, I think it was in Isaiah 23, there's some places where Isaiah, his gaze goes past this local little king of Tyre who we in in history kinda go, yeah, whatever. But they start talking, Isaiah starts talking in a broader scope about the king of Tyre as being, remember the one that was there in the Garden of Eden. How did king of Tyre get to the Garden of Eden? Well, that's because Isaiah's gaze goes past this evil, wicked king and starts painting a portrait and a picture of who Satan himself is. And it's like a dual fulfillment. King of Tyre was like a picture in his evil and all that stuff of Satan himself. Um, And so sometimes you get these these dual and even there's triple fulfillments of prophecy as you go through the Bible uh, where they kind of ripple effect throughout time. So it gets really interesting when you start talking about dual fulfillments and triple fulfillment. This is where Daniel chapter eight, you gotta kinda see this because we're talking about an actual dude that came out of the four generals, out of the solution empire that's gonna fulfill chapter eight. It literally is a dude that we're gonna talk about um, and, and we'll, we'll find out who he is in a second. Um, but it, it, you should keep in the back of your mind that this, this is a, a, a foreshadow Of what's coming. Um, Now, in Daniel chapter 2, we see the ten kings, and in the days of those ten kings comes the king of kings and builds up his kingdom. Daniel 2 sort of bypasses um, the whole uh, antichrist or this figure we're talking about tonight. Daniel 2 just goes straight from the ten kingdoms to uh, just suddenly you've got the return of Christ setting up his kingdom, it doesn't fill in the detail. Daniel chapter seven mentions this little horn, um, but you know, it doesn't really say much about him uh, really, but the little horn uh, we could say is the Antichrist. And it has to do with what Daniel seven told us about him, what he was gonna do. And it had to do with the last times, the end times, what Antichrist is gonna do. And remember we compared Revelation 13 with Daniel seven at Prophecy Update. That, that's, the, that's the correlation between the little horn of seven and the little horn or the antichrist of of Revelation 13. But here, you almost have to do a reset in Daniel chapter eight and forget the antichrist just for a second, just for a second, forget him. And I wanna introduce you to a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, He's called Antiochus the fourth. Um, And he's an interesting guy in in the world's history. Um, Maybe some of you even studied him, probably not, uh, especially if you're younger, um, (laughs) because they don't teach history anymore. Uh, But uh, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, was the, the Greek... Hellenistic king that came of the Seleucid empire. So if you're kind of tracking what we're talking about, remember the four generals, Seleucus was one of them who went up to uh, Syria, Babylon, and that area. And so the Seleucid empire grew, and then out of, after a few rulers and emperors from the, the, the one of the four generals of, uh, of Alexander, eventually came this Seleucid guy named Antiochus, or Antiochus. Um, uh, in Antioch, Syria was named after him, by the way. Um, um, So you gotta understand that we're talking about a a dude uh, that kinda came out of the four generals in the Seleucid Empire. And he would do battle between the Ptolemies uh, down in Egypt and himself. And guess what nation was right smack dab between Syria and Egypt? Anybody? Israel, Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Israel would be the speed bump We'll see this in chapter 11, where these Seleucids and Ptolemies are gonna romp back and forth over Israel. And Israel's sort of in the way of this huge conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. But um, eventually, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes would come out on top uh, and wipe out, you know, or destroy the kingdom of the Ptolemies down in in Egypt. Um, But he ended up settling and kind of doing all kinds of troublesome stuff um, in Jerusalem. He really had it out. As it turns out, this this king, for whatever reason, he hated the Jews. He hated them with a passion. Um, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. Now, there's some other things you should know about this guy. Um, uh, Antiochus, uh, the word Epiphanes, uh, as I say it, uh, different people pronounce it differently, but um, uh, it means um, God manifest or uh, God manifested among us glorious or illustrious. This word epiphanies um, means that he considered himself a god. Uh, some, there are some, you know, ancient stones that were carved in writings that called him Ant- Antiochus Theos, uh, Antiochus the god. Uh, that's what they called him um, because he thought himself to be a god. The Jews had sort of a funny name for Antiochus. He was called Antiochus Epiphanes, but they called him Antiochus uh, Antiochus Epimanes. Uh, It was a play on words uh, that meant Antiochus the madman. They thought he was a nut job, uh, and he was. uh, He was crazy, this guy Antiochus, who is the one being talked about here in Daniel chapter eight. Um, And uh, it's kind of an interesting story. And you're gonna see some things that are very familiar uh, in this probably, uh, and then we'll make some correlations and what have you. So let's let's look at this. What we just read uh, about this, back to Daniel 8, it says that he, verse 11, magnified himself, um, this little horn, you know? And it says that he, he was gonna go south. When he was going south, by the way, verse nine, he was going south to, to fight the Ptolemies in, in Egypt. But along the way, it says that he went, um, uh, went south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. The word pleasant land, there's another uh, name for Israel. Um, and he got stronger and stronger, verse 10. Um, and, and then there's question about to the host of heaven, uh, and it cast down some of the host and the stars to the ground and stamped on them. There's speculation and argument about what we're talking about when we're talking about the host of heaven, but most scholars agree that we're talking about Jews, um, you know, uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and we could even talk about the stars. Uh, and the host that bowed down before Joseph, um, uh, meaning you know even Jacob and the Jews. So there's some interesting uh, d- discussion about this, but this is what he would try to do is cast down the Jews to the ground and, that, and he would be largely successful in that. Um, and then verse 11, he'd magnify himself even to the prince of the host and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Uh, does this sound familiar? Going into the temple, the place of the sanctuary, the place of the sacrifice? The daily sacrifice happened in the temple in Jerusalem. And this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, is the guy that went down there and did all kinds of dastardly deeds. Um, he hated the Jews, so he did whatever he could to make Jews uh, you know, humbled. One of the things he did, Jews don't eat bacon, right? They're kosher. Uh, It's always funny to me. Uh, One of the things that um, sometimes when I bring our tour group to Israel, we drive by this huge field. And I always love to show our tourists as we're going through Israel because there's this huge field. And on this huge field is a deck that's built like two feet above the ground. A huge deck. Like a huge field. It's a big, giant deck. And you look at the deck and all these pigs are walking around on this deck. Um, And then it's fenced in. And you're like, why are those pigs on the deck? The answer... Jews are not supposed to have pigs on the land of Israel. That's according to the law of Moses. So they figured a loophole, just build a deck, keep them off the land. As long as they don't touch the ground, you're good to go, you know. Um, And then they sell their bacon for a nice profit in Israel because it's hard to find bacon in Israel. And you get a nice profit when you sell to those you know, horrible uh, Gentiles uh, their bacon and their ham, but uh, they're making a lot of money off of it because they're the only pigs in the land. Uh, it's a kind of a funny thing. The law was meant to be found loopholes, I think, sometimes. That's what the Jews did. But, um, but this Antiochus Epiphanes knew the Jews didn't have pigs or eat pig. And so he did horrible things. When he went into the Jews' temple, he started smearing pig's blood all over the inside of the temple. And he was forcing the, the, the temple priests to drink pig's blood. One of the guys uh, was the high priest during that time, when Antiochus came and he made this one priest um, drink pig's blood there on the temple steps. um, And then he would be ultimately killed right there. Um, But what's interesting about this, therein lies a story. Um, That that priest had some sons. um, And as it turns out, the sons weren't quite so priestly. They were more Navy SEAL Team Six material. Uh, A group called the Maccabees and the Maccabean Revolt, they're the dudes that came and would ultimately wipe out Antiochus Epiphanes and restore Jerusalem. It would be the sons of the priests that they made drink blood on those temple steps. The Maccabean Revolt, maybe you've heard of that. If you recall in the Maccabean Revolt, once they took back Jerusalem, they purified the temple. Um, and there was a cleansing process that they had to go through that took you know, uh, you know eight days. Um, And so they purified the temple and they lit up the candles, you know, the candlesticks. But as it turns out, they only had in the the oil supply one day of oil to keep the lamps going. And everybody was really bummed out. Like, what are we going to do? We're supposed to keep this in order to purify the temple. The lamp has to burn for these, you know, the eight days. They only had one day supply. But as the story goes, um miraculously, the candles just kept burning. One day's worth of oil lasted for the cleansing of the temple for eight days, and it kept the lights there on the menorah uh, or the Hanukkah uh, stand uh, there, the lampstand. It kept it uh, light for those eight days, and to this day, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. Um, Did you know that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah? They're in John chapter Ten. Jesus was there at the at the Temple Mount when they were celebrating this very feast in John chapter Ten. What is it Ten Twenty-two or something like that, somewhere in chapter ten of John, uh, Jesus is there celebrating uh, the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. As it turns out, this all comes from this time um, when Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple, and and not only did he you know do that horrible thing with the pigs' blood and the killing of the priest, but he also set up an image of himself, a statue, right there at the temple to be worshipped. Are the Jews into statues and idols? Uh, By this time in history, the Jews were horrified of statues. Every time they started doing gods and goddesses and statues, it got them into horrible trouble. By this time, the Jews were horrified of this. By the way, when the Romans came into Jerusalem, um, one of the things that made Pontius Pilate so unpopular is when he came into Jerusalem, as history tells it, he brought in all the Roman standards, you know, where they come marching in Rome, you know. da da here come the Romans you know and, and they're bringing their big standards with golden eagles up on top of them um, the Jews flipped out and uh, the older Jews they, they literally freaked out and protested as you know here's this new guy coming in Pontius Pilate, who was told go down and be peaceful with those Jews like don't cause any trouble and he rides into Jerusalem with these golden eagles and the Jews the old men laid their heads on the ground and said chop our heads off kill us and they're like, what's, what's your problem? We don't want any idolatry in Jerusalem and you're bringing those idols of Rome into, kill us right now. Like that's what, that's what they said. So, so Pontius Pilate kind of put away the golden standards and stuff because it was making the Jews freak out and he was already had several strikes against him about being a leader there in Judea. But that's a whole other story. The Jews were that passionate by this time um, about these uh, idolatry and stuff. So so here comes Antiochus Epiphanes setting up his image there at the temple to be worshiped, and the Jews freaked out. Um, there's different stories about this, but some say in one day he killed 40,000 Jews. Uh, Antiochus did. Um, some estimates uh, during his whole evil, you know, plundering and pillaging of Jerusalem, uh, some say he killed upwards of a million Jews mm-hmm during this uh, uh, you know, solution, domination over uh, Jerusalem. Now all that to say, what's interesting about that is this event uh, is gonna ring familiar. Uh, this is called by history buffs and what have you, the transgression of desolation. Does that sound familiar? Um, so he goes in and, and if you know your Bible prophecy, this is starting to sound really familiar of something that we've talked about that's gonna happen in the future. But one of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes did here is he caused the sacrifice in the temple to cease. He speared pig's blood, set up an image of himself to be worshiped, and he said, no more slaughtering of lambs, rams, goats. You Jews cannot be Jews anymore. No more Judaism is basically what he was saying. And that's what, that's what we're reading about here in verse 11, where it says he magnified himself even to the prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. That's exactly what verse 11 is talking about. When Antiochus of Adventist commits this transgression of desolation. Now, you and I have talked about another event, very similar, the abomination of desolation. But that sounds very familiar and very similar. Yes, tuck that away as we keep looking at this. Verse 12, um, and a host was given him, uh, that is an army, against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And that's where we we think, you know, he was killing Jews by the tens of thousands, maybe even to a million people. Um, Now it says he cast down the truth to the ground there in verse 12. And what that's speaking of is Antiochus went into the Jewish, you know, synagogues and the places where there were the Jewish, you know, scrolls of the book, the scriptures. And he went in and burned uh, Antiochus, as it turns out, was a book burner, or as it were, a scroll burner of the Jews. And he destroyed a bunch of the writings of the biblical uh, scrolls of, of the Jews. And that's what it means when he cast down the truth. And interesting wording here, and he, it practiced and prospered. Um, what, what, what did he do? Practice. Did he practice his piano lessons? Like, what was he practicing? Well, the word practice there in the original language here of the Hebrew, and by the way, did I tell you, we, we've shifted back to Hebrew uh, in the book of Daniel back in chapter seven. I don't know if I told you guys that. Remember, we were in Aramaic, uh, the original writing of Daniel, uh, chapter two, middle part, to verse uh, ch- chapter through chapter six. That's all in Aramaic, but then we shifted back to Hebrew uh, right here. Um, but all that to say, the word practice is linked to the occult and sort of black magic and evil and uh, almost like practicing witchcraft is sort of the idea there. Um, somehow this guy um, was very evil and dark. The Antiochus Epiphanes was into you know, evil stuff, which was kind of a big thing back then. Remember I told you about Olympias, Alexander the Great's mother? She was quite a character as it comes to witchcraft and all that stuff herself. But these people were very, you know, um, into the supernatural and powerful and evil and what have you. This guy did that. Um, um, Then uh, it says uh, in verse 13, it says, you know, uh, I heard one saint speaking and another saint, and said, that certain saint which spake, How long shall the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and transgression of desolation? to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as an appearance of a man. Now, we'll talk about who this man is in a second. But one one of the saints here Uh, in verse 13, speaking to another, saying, oh no, how long is the, because to the Jew, you know, the the whole thing is sacrifice. How long is the sacrifice gonna cease in Jerusalem? Why did the Jews care about sacrifice in Jerusalem? It had to do with sin. It was their way that they knew that their sins would be forgiven. Apart from sacrifice in the temple there, they had no forgiveness of sin, both personally, but also nationally. The day of atonement couldn't happen. Uh, if you didn't have the temple worship and the temple sacrifice. So this was troubling to the Jews, deeply concerning that their sins would not be forgiven. And so they're saying, oh man, how long is this gonna go on? And the the, the word comes here, 2,300 days. Now the word day there, mark it, because the word day in the Hebrew text here is extremely controversial. Um, You say, how could the word day be controversial? Well, it is. As you read it here, it says, you know, how long shall it be? And it says 2,300 days. But many of your margins say um, evenings and mornings. Now you say, well, who says that? Isn't the same thing? An evening and a morning is a day? No, they're saying 2,300 evenings and mornings, meaning you know, half of that. <laughs> like is it 2,300 2, or cut that in half because you got evening and day and that counts as two. Um, so there's debate on this one. But as it turns out, there are some people who've done some of the math here and it's a little controversial. But largely, and, and this is a generality, I wish I could nail it down um, um, for you perfectly, but I can't. Um, and some people do, uh, and I'll just say, say to you, just do the math yourself. And some of these people that say for sure, this is what it was, you do the math, you're like, man, that doesn't work. And then you use the Jewish calendar of, of, of you, know, year, you know, years or, uh, of 360 you know, days, because that's the Jewish calendar, uh, versus the Gregorian calendar, and then you use this leap year and you have to do all this stuff. But still, it's kind of hard to work out. I'm just gonna say it. Um, even some of my favorite authors have worked it out. But if you do the math, it's still kind of hard. But I'll give you a generality. Um, the, the bottom line is, um, you know, this all sort of happened like, you know, um, you know 165 BC. But then it would, it would go on uh, uh, until the time when the solutions would be destroyed by uh, the Maccabeans. So, you know, 171 BC. Um, and some believe that happened on our calendar, September, uh, September 6th. Um, which is kind of an interesting thing, um, that 171, September 6th. But you could do the math on this and it brings you to kind of an interesting date, some people believe, but it's, it's in generally terms. I know I'm him and hawing here, but uh, it's, I'm just challenging, if you're interested in this, look it up and you'll find all kinds of writings on this. It's kind of a funny thing, but generally speaking, the question here, it, it did come out close to that time period and that is that from the time whenever Antiochus took away the sacrifice there in the temple, to the time when the Maccabees took back the temple and cleansed it and the first Hanukkah, which the first Hanukkah um, on our calendar was actually, interestingly enough, December 25th. Um, Now you say, well, why isn't Hanukkah December 25th every week or year for the Jews? They don't use our calendar. Did you understand that? They use the Jewish calendar of different months that are different lengths. And so Hanukkah often falls in different places of December depending on what year you're at. This has caused caused much confusion, by the way, for uh, those those of us that don't really relate to the Jewish calendar. Um, But but all that to say, it it was about that time period from the time of the abomination of desolation by this Antiochus guy, to the restoring and cleansing. It was about 2,300 days or roughly thereat. So um, I believe when we get to heaven, we'll figure out, oh, those dates are exactly right. Does that make sense? It's just that there's disagreement in secular world and writings and stuff about how many da- or what dates those really were. The one date that is fairly solid though is the very first Hanukkah was our calendar date, December 25th, I think that's great. That kind of helps us understand a little bit. Um, so is it okay to celebrate Hanukkah? Yes, because Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. And, and it's, rem- it's a remembering of this event. It's a kind of a cool thing that is actually a biblical event that's talked about. Is it okay to celebrate Kwanzaa? I would say no, I'll tell you why. Um, it has nothing to do with the Bible and everything to do with a guy in the 60s, 1960s, that uh, whipped a girl with an extension cord and went to prison and then came up with a, a, a holiday for our African-American community. Look it up, I'm just telling you. Um, uh, some of my favorite you know, uh, uh, things that have been written about this is, is the African-American community saying, what are we doing celebrating Kwanzaa when you really look at its history? Um, so be careful about your Christmas celebrations. Uh, Kwanzaa is a no, Hanukkah is a yes, Christmas is a yes, uh, Babylonian uh, winter solstice and uh, all that, no, okay? Just, just if you're sorting through the things, um, I'm just, just telling you. Uh, so <laughs> I love the Christmas time, and, uh, but this, this, this transgression of desolation is what's being talked about here where he wipes out the worship and then it would be gone for 2,300 uh, days according to the Bible. That's the one I'm going to land on and, and bank on uh, as far as dates and all that. Well, then uh, it says, there came to pass, uh, you know, there in verse 15, even, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Um, and behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. Now, who is this man? And I heard a man's voice between the, the banks of the Ulai, which called and said, Gabriel. Make this man to understand the vision. Oh, we meet a Gabriel, this is exciting. Now there's different angels in the Bible, um, but um, it's, it's interesting how angels have different sort of um, you know, um, powers and what have you. Um, but Michael and Gabriel, if you had to say what um, Michael's role is, anybody wanna to try to say what is his role? He's more of a warrior, right? What is Gabriel's role in the Bible, anybody? More of a messenger, right? Um, and, and so here it is, Gabriel the messenger angel. This is a big deal, because Gabriel showed up. Uh, this, is, this is a big deal. And, and it says here uh, that Daniel you know, uh, hears this, this man's voice that says, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So verse 17, he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, understand, O son of man, For at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, this is where people get all up in a tizzy. The time of the end of what? Um, The end of the earth, the end of the world, the end of time, or the end of the Seleucid empire, or the end, and the answer might just be yes. Um, Because remember, this is a dual fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, We'll see this. Um, Now, verse 18. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was, in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. Um, so this is what some of you are doing now as I'm speaking. Uh, you just you gotta fall to sleep. Uh, no, I, you know you're not doing that. Um, I had a lady on our one of our radio listeners. You know she listens to KPDQ and says, "Oh, I just every night I love listening to your 10 o'clock uh, KPDQ through the Bible. I, I just turn it on every night because it, it puts me to sleep every night." Like she she, she would. I think she meant it as a compliment, but it was just kind of funny. Oh yeah, I said that's what my teaching generally does. Um, uh, really effective. Um, <laughs> but here Gabriel's talking. Now the idea when he says he fell asleep, it's probably better translated that he actually fainted when he saw all this stuff. He fainted and Gabriel has to come and, and, and wake him up. And, and there's some interesting language here that we can talk about translation and what have you about where it says he touched me and set me upright. Um, you, you picture him leaning Daniel up, so he's sitting up again, but it might be, have you ever heard somebody say, I'm gonna set that person straight? That might be more of what's going on. Gabriel's saying, Daniel, wake up from your fainting. And then he starts to say, Daniel, you gotta understand, uh, I need to set you straight on this stuff, uh, set you up upright. There's debate on what exactly that is, but that's actually what he's gonna do. Verse 19. And he said, behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. Um, so it is funny how it does seem like the, uh, the gaze goes, starts to go further than just Antiochus Epiphanes when we're talking about the end. Um, and this is what the Bible does. Uh, when, when suddenly we're talking about the king of Tyre, and then suddenly we're talking about this guy, how he was there in the Garden of Eden deceiving Eve. You're like, wait a minute, that wasn't the king of Tyre. Tyre, it's it's a fulfillment uh, that goes bigger and and that's kind of what we're seeing here perhaps. Um, He says, man, this is a big deal. This is how the end shall be. Verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having the two horns are the kings of Media and Persia and the rough goat is the king of Greece and the great horn is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of one nation, but not in his power. Um, This is interesting. This is exactly what happened. Not in the he-goat's horn's power, Alexander's power, but in the four kingdoms, the Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, Lysimachus, those four kingdoms are what's being talked about here. Um, And uh, and it, it says, not a You know, not as powerful, verse 22, but not in his power. The idea is not as powerful as the original king that conquered the whole world, Alexander the Great, which those guys never would be as powerful as Alexander, just like the Bible says. And then in verse uh, 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he he, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the the evening and morning, which was told is true. Um, Now we've got this description and and Gabriel saying, okay, here here I'm gonna square it away for you. And now we're talking about the little horn of Daniel chapter eight. Like this this is what we're talking about. Um, and, and as we compare the little horn of Daniel chapter eight and, the, and the, um, Daniel chapter seven, there is a kind of a compare and contrast that we can do. Um, that's kind of interesting. Um, but um, what I wanna do is kinda take a look about, uh, you know, um, the, 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 the relationship of verse eight, or chapter eight with this little horn. Let's look at his characteristics. Number one, if you're jotting down notes, maybe you can jot them down. Uh, here we go. Uh, number one this little horn of Daniel chapter eight will achieve great power by subduing other nations. We see that in verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Um, He shall destroy wonderfully. Now the word wonderfully there, by the way, is a word that the 1611 King James translates because um, the, the word wonderful has a positive connotation when we use it today. In 1611, the word wonder meant full of wonder. And you could be full of wonder that somebody just robbed you and say, wow, that was wonderful, full of wonder. Uh, That was the way they used it in 1611. So don't be confused. It doesn't mean, oh, wonderful. He took over all the kingdoms. No, it means that it it was crazy uh, and it was uh, full of wonder. Um, uh, So he shall destroy. uh, And the idea is you'll stand in wonder at how horribly he destroys things. Um, And it says he shall prosper and practice and destroy the mighty and the holy people. Um, One of the things that we see in Daniel chapter seven, remember the little horn pops out and what's the first thing that he does? He takes the three horns of the 10. Remember the 10 horns? And he rips them out by the roots. Um, One of the things that this this guy Antiochus Epiphanes did is he subdued other nations before he did all this uh, stuff against Jerusalem and he will reach great power. The first place he wiped out, by the way, was uh, down there in Alexandria in in the Egyptian area, and he subdued those nations. Then he came up and started fighting against the Jews. So what we're gonna see here is the the same kind of characteristic, same thing that Antiochus Epiphanes did is the same thing this coming world leader, the Antichrist will do. He'll come um, and he will destroy other nations. Now, this is something you guys have to remember. We have to remember, when is this gonna happen? Antiochus uh, you know, came after he destroyed a bunch of nations. The church is gonna be raptured before Antichrist comes. We'll show you that again here in a minute uh, in 2 Thessalonians. But the order of this, if you're a Christian, I don't believe we're gonna see this, this stuff that goes on with the coming Antichrist. But the 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 stage being set for that kind of world leader—that's what we talked about on uh, Friday night. Our prophecy update last Friday night um, is the stage that's being set for this coming world leader. And you can totally see the pieces falling into place right now for a for a coming world leader, and uh, and the subduing of other nations. That's going to have to happen. Don't you wonder what's, what nations this coming world leader is going to have to subdue? What are the three horns? You know, and, and if you believe that the 10 horns are maybe the European you know, economic community or the European Union, um, you, you might have to kind of wonder, is, is he gonna wipe out, you know, what nation is he, gonna, is he gonna wipe out maybe the nations that have to do with the, the Gog Magog invasion, uh, Iran, Turkey, Russia? Like that, that'd be an interesting thing. But then you have to think, well, what is that out of the old Roman empire? And then you have to kind of start thinking about that. Or is it they're going to subdue other nations, the United States? And, you know, it just makes you, you you can kind of start thinking, well, who's he going to have to subdue? One of the things that really doesn't go with global world religion, a worldwide economic system, religion, power, which is going to be in the last days, one of the biggest obstacles that stands in the way of globalism right now has been traditionally the United States of America. That's interesting to me. Um, What needs to be taken out before you can really see this Antichrist um, do what he wants to do? Traditionally, whatever we've stood for as the United States of America, that's got to be gone. Because globalism wouldn't thrive, especially with the United States being one of the greatest powers that have ever been on the earth. But it starts to make sense of why the United States is sort of faltering and failing and losing reputation, even as we speak. And and you, you look at this, this leadership that we have now that's very much into this idea of globalism. And the things that they're doing to sort of, you know, push for globalism, uh, it has everything to do with it. Uh, the economic or even you know, um, the global you know, community around climate change and uh, even the pandemic. There's all kinds of things that are sort of pushing the United States and, and, and you know, even, even the you know, when we were trying to be more energy independent, we were becoming more independent uh, a few years ago. Now we're watching our gas prices go back up and it's because we're moving more to a global kind of world. You know, if the dollar remains the economic unit, um, our gas prices stay fairly normal, but as soon as the dollar is no longer the unit of monetary use in the world, then suddenly we'll be given the exchange tax that the rest of the world's had to use for all these years. When you go to other countries, they pay seven, eight, nine dollars a gallon for gas, and they have for a long time. Why do we get such a good deal? Because the, the, the unit of money we use is the dollar. And, and as soon as the United States kind of taken it out of the way, suddenly globalism is very possible. Um, uh, and the world is sort of set for that. There's only a few crazy people in America that still are hanging on to their own identity uh, and are kind of not really into being globalists. Um, and it, as it turns out, it has, a lot of Christians are kind of like, yeah, we kind of liked our country when we used to say stuff like one nation under God. That's not a globalism thing. That, that's, that's a very independent kind of thing for a nation to say. Um, I'm sort of being facetious here, but we're, we're seeing our nation change right before our eyes. It's a little bit sad and depressing for me because I feel as a guy my age, it's on my watch. We've watched our, our nation just kind of spiral into this craziness. Um, and it's a little bit sad. Uh, you know, there, there used to be a generation that really fought for freedom. And we used to value uh, liberty. But we're seeing that uh, just being Cashed in, and certain people are cashing in on it, but it's not most of the Americans. It's a small few who are into this globalism thing. Anyway, um, all that to say, the Antichrist is going to have to have power. He's going to have to wipe out a few nations along the way to get his globalism, his his one world government, economic, religious, uh, military. It's all going to be part of a one world movement. He's going to have to subdue nations. Number two that we see, compare and contrast Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Um, Not only will he achieve great power by subduing other nations, but number two, rise to power by promising false peace. Did you see this here in Daniel chapter 8? It says there in in our text, it talks about how he's going to through peace, verse 25. It says, and by peace shall he destroy many. Um, The word peace, there's also a word that could be translated as prosperity. Peace and prosperity. Um, This is the way uh, this guy, Antiochus, sort of first entered in. Like, it's all gonna be good. Hey, we're here just to help you out. And then he ended up wiping them all out and hating them with a passion. That's what Antiochus did. What's the Antichrist gonna do? Antichrist is gonna come in and sign a peace treaty. The first three and a half years of the tribulation period is gonna be a time where he's gonna be seen as this peacemaker and they're gonna sign and say, oh, he's our man. And the Jews are gonna think he's their Messiah. But when he commits the abomination of desolation, that you know, temple defiled, worshiping of himself, image set up, same stuff that Antichrist did, same stuff Antichrist is gonna do, that's when the Jews will realize He's at war with us, Um, but he's gonna promise peace, just like Daniel 8, uh, 25. Number three, um, he's going to be intelligent and persuasive. We see that in Daniel uh, chapter eight, verse 23. Um, It says, um, the king will be of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences and shall stand up. All speaking of his uh, powerful persona, Um, And that's what Antiochus was. He was a little nutty if you read about him in history, but he also was very persuasive and strikingly intelligent. Well, this coming world leader, Antichrist, he's gonna come with that same sort of thing. Um, Sometimes you wonder, do you ever wonder about great leaders throughout history? Were they crazy or were they intelligent? Or a little bit of both. Um, When you read about some of these world leaders and some of our leaders today, um, you have to kind of wonder. Are they a little nutty or are they just really smart or both? Hmm. Sometimes I think there's a fine line between those. Well, as it turns out, Antiochus was that guy and so will be the Antichrist, intelligent and persuasive. Uh, Number four, we read in Daniel chapter eight, verse 24, he'll be controlled by another. Um, Interesting, Uh, um, it it, it tells us that in verse 24, uh, it says, Uh, And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Uh, That's an interesting phrase here when you talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, um, And there's debate on how, how that applies to Antiochus, but we know how it applies to Antichrist. Who's the other person who's gonna be really controlling by power? And we know this from other scriptures. Who's gonna be giving power to the Antichrist? Satan. We read that in Prophecy Update. Revelation chapter 13, his power comes from Satan himself, and it's given to him to control uh, others, as it turns out. Number five, uh, clearly he's going to be an adversary against Israel. We see that, you know, that he's going to cast down and destroy uh, the people of of the land of Israel, and we see that all in chapter eight. But um, in verses 24 and 25, um, you know, he's going to Destroy and and um, and it says in the end of verse 24, he shall destroy the mighty and the holy people that's the Jews. And through his policy, uh, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and magnify himself um, and stand up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without hand. Interesting. How did Antiochus die, by the way? Um, he died. Uh, by a horrible, horrible, uh, loathsome disease that I can't even really talk about. Look it up. Uh, it was like horrible the way this guy died, Antiochus. But it's interesting the Antichrist is going to die not by uh, any person's hand. Jesus Christ is going to come and wipe out Antichrist. Um, but as it turns out, uh, both of these characters, Antichrist and Antiochus, hate the Jews and are going to speak horrible things against the Jews. And then both these guys will do that. Number six. Um, uh, he's going to rise up into opposition to the Prince of Princes, Daniel 8, 25. Um, some say the Prince of Princes would be the high priest that was killed there on the temple steps that had the sons who came and wiped him out. But the idea of the Antichrist opposition to the Prince of Princes, we know that is that of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, so we see this really following Antichrist plan to the, to the T. Um, um, well, uh, number, what are we on? Seven. seven. Yes, I forgot to change my Roman numeral there. Uh, that's really a number seven. Um, but because we're talking about the Antichrist, we'll keep it a six. Uh, <laughs> his rule will be terminated by divine judgment. That's that's where, um, you know, it says here in our, our scripture, verse 25, uh, 25 it says, um, you know, he, he will be broken without hand. That's what we were talking about, that Christ is going to come and do this. Now, all this to say um, about this coming Antichrist, um, you know, what I love about this is we know what's going to happen, but we also are not going to be there. Now, if you're a post-tribber, which some of you might be, and God bless you, I love you guys, and when we got raptured, you guys will all say, you were right, Brett, and we'll all be really happy uh, because you won't have to go through the tribulation like you thought you did. Um, if we're in the tribulation and I'm wrong, uh, then I'm gonna say, you were right. And man, you're, you're a real bummer, what an Eeyore. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, I won't say that. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm one that firmly believes in the pre-trib rapture. And, and some people say, Brian, why don't you teach all the views? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a ton of views. Pre-trib, post-trib, awmill, sawmill. There's all kinds of <laughs> views that are out there. And I could, I could talk about them. But it's really hard for me to, to talk about them because I firmly, I've, I've spent a lot of my life studying this stuff and I, when I was 18, I remember thinking, oh, I was kind of raised to believe in a pre-trib rapture, pre-millennial, uh, dispensational kind of view. And, and I, I started thinking, I wonder if I was just kind of believing what I learned as a kid. So when I turned 18, I, I spent a lot of time, several years, diving into all the various views, pre-wrath, you know, um, uh, which is probably if you made me switch from pre-trib and you just said that's the wrong one and God just said, you know, revealed that's the wrong, then pre-wrath might, I can see why people follow more of a pre rath or, or even kind of a mid-trib sort of view. I, I get that. I don't agree with it, uh, but I, I get it. I see why people believe that. The post-trib thing, the more I dove into it, the more it made zero sense to me. And uh, And I read a bunch of the post-trib proponents and people that were really saying that. Uh, Amillennialism, which is basically what the Catholics and some of the Presbyterians believe are uh, the millennial, we're in the millennial kingdom. There's no literal millennial kingdom or the preterist view um, that you don't take anything literally. All the stuff like amillennialism and preterism makes zero sense now because the Bible prophecies that we're talking about that are in question are unfolding right before our eyes right now. It's, it's a little bit like the little preschooler go, plugging their ears saying, la 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 la, you can't see me or hear me, la 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 la. And we're all like, mm, you're right there, little kid. Um, that's like the amillennial uh, um, and, uh, and the preterist view where everything's figurative, totally understand why they were that 500 years ago. But now that Israel's become a nation, prophecies are being fulfilled literally. We're seeing the pieces come together for the Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're seeing the, the world stage set for what the Bible calls globalism, our one world, new world order with the antichrist. We're seeing all the players and pieces come into place. We need to start taking the Bible literally again, folks. Um, I hope you understand that. Don't be duped by these people. Oh, these pre-trib guys, they're Darbyists and they're, referring to Darby who they say is the first guy that mentioned the rapture of the church. And they say the word rapture is not even in the Bible. I've shown you, there's places it doesn't say rapture in the English translation, but in the Latin it does call it rapture, Greek harpazo. It's just such a dishonest uh, argument in my opinion. But the reason I go into all that stuff is because um, if you're a pre-tribber where you believe the rapture of the church is gonna happen before this tribulation, seven years, the great tribulation is the last three and a half years, we believe that it's gonna happen, we're, we're gonna be taken out before all this comes down. So we're not gonna see this Antichrist. We'll be in heaven, marriage feast of the Lamb. Thank the Lord for that. Well, then why should we look at this? Because like I mentioned on our Prophecy Update, we're seeing the stage set for this. And like I talked about on Sunday, when you see in August the Christmas decorations, you're excited because Thanksgiving's coming. Um, Just like when you see the stage set for Antichrist, you're excited because the rapture of the church is the next thing on the list, Uh, the rapture, imminence. And by the way, the post-trib and other views, you can't have an imminence in the rapture. That is, you, you you know where you can't nail down when it's gonna happen. If you believe the rapture is happening at the very end of the tribulation, you can count your days. Um, Do you remember the abomination of desolation is gonna happen exactly halfway through the tribulation. If you do the math, the rapture of the church then should be exactly three and a half years after that where we'll be taken up. But then if you're taken up at the end, you're taken up and then you come back down, second coming of Christ. Yo-yo eschatology. Um, I don't believe in that. There's a purpose for the rapture to be at the beginning. You're raptured up, seven years tribulation on earth, seven year honeymoon, marriage feast of the lamb uh, with the church and Christ in heaven. And then we return with him after those seven years with ten thousands of the saints, he comes back and takes over and rules and reigns. And that's when the millennial kingdom, we're not in the millennium right now, thank the Lord. If you were to tell me I'm in the millennial kingdom right now, like some of our you know Catholic friends, then that would be the most depressing thing I ever did here. Because Daniel says during the millennial kingdom, it'll be an end of transgressions. Nobody will sin anymore. Is that the day we're living in? Uh, we're really far from that. Uh, but, but um, and, and the description in Daniel chapter nine, which we'll see next week, Lord willing, uh, of the millennial kingdom, it's nothing like that right now. That's still coming. And that's only gonna come when Christ returns, the second coming. uh, And we're gonna see how that shakes out in Daniel chapter nine. Um, Don't forget what the Bible told us. We looked at this, uh, I think on the Prophecy Update, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter two, uh, verses six through eight. It says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. We're talking about this antichrist character. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, it will do so until he is out of the way. Now the he there is in question. Is it the Holy Spirit or is it the church? And the answer, anybody? Yes. <laughs> yes, it's the Holy Spirit as he works in the church. Uh, the church is the one where the Holy Spirit is moving right now. We're the one holding, King James puts, I, I put up in the ESV, because I love the clarity of this translation, but the King James says, he who now lets will let. Uh, hold back We're the church and the Holy Spirit in the church is holding back from this person who's going to be revealed, the Antichrist. And we will continue to, reveal, uh, to, to hold back or restrain until the church is taken out of the way there. Verse, uh, end of verse seven, verse eight. And then the lawless one, that's one of his names, the Antichrist, lawless one. Anybody acting fairly lawless these days? Any politicians that don't care about laws anymore? That's just fitting the bill right there. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's that last part when it says that the Antichrist or Antiochus, both of them died not at the hand of a man, but at the hand of God. God's going to deal. That's what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2. So you and I, rather than freaking about who the Antichrist is going to be, Um, we can look forward to uh, our savior, Jesus, who's going to rapture his church and we'll be with Jesus Christ. And then when he returns, uh, the second coming, remember the rapture is not a coming. The rapture is where we meet him in the air. He's not going to put his foot down on this earth. We're going to be taken up to be with the Lord for seven years. Uh, By the way, the seven years is a relative term when you're in heaven. Have you thought about that for a second? So seven years are going to happen on this earth, but who knows what it's going to feel like. Remember a day with the Lord, that's where we're going to be, is with the Lord. A day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is with the Lord a day. So we'll be up there for seven days. What does that mean? Could be seven days, could be 7,000 years Uh, up in heaven, just rejoicing before, like heaven's a relative thing when you get there, as far as time and space. That's why In um, Ecclesiastes um, 3.15, it talks about how the things that have already happened with God are not yet been. Or the things which have taken place uh, or or haven't taken place already are. Like there's this mind-bending verse there in Ecclesiastes 3 that talks about how time, uh, God is sort of lives outside of time and space. It's this world that's limited to time and space. So the rapture of the church, we're gonna be with the Lord. And what that's gonna be like, all I know is the Bible says, it's gonna be awesome glorious but then we're going to return with him and it's still going to be glorious because that's going to be bringing in the millennial kingdom which is going to be incredible we have much to look forward to when you see the bad things happening in this world and the stage being set for the evil of the antichrist and the you know this this, the world system and one world government don't be depressed be hopeful um let's finish with one more verse It says, verse 26, And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told, is true. Wherefore, shut them thou up. You're saying, Brett, you should have done that about 10 minutes ago. (laughs) Shut thou up the vision, for it shall be many days. Now, this is where it gets great. What does Daniel do? And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick. Coronavirus. Uh, Certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. I love this and I wanna finish with that uh, tonight because if you're like, Brad, I don't even understand anything you said tonight. No sweat, no big deal. Uh, It takes a while to understand Bible prophecy. It's not hard, but it it does come as you work at it. But Daniel didn't understand a word. He just, he's like, I don't understand it. Um, And he even had Angel Gabriel trying to help him to understand it. But what did he do? He did the right thing. He went about the King's business. That's what you and I should do. Go about the king's business. And what's the king's business? Jesus told us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the business of the king. And that's what we should be all about. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's stand together. Lord, how we pray that as we study your word, that you'd give us understanding and uh, the right heart, Lord. Um, We know a lot of people talking about the world and what's going on are given to fear. But we know that's not of you. Not to be given over to that spirit of fear, but of, of power and love and of a sound mind. Lord, may that be true of your church. And, but I also pray that we, we'd be like the faithful servant, watching, waiting, and trusting, Lord. I pray, Lord, that like Daniel, that we would go about the king's business. Um, Lord, use this scripture to, to meet that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.